Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome to Basketball History 101. I am your host, Rick Loiza. This is a podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. Today we are taking you to the barnstorming days of early basketball to a team called the New York Rens, short for the New York Renaissance. Sometimes they were called the Renaissance Big Five or the Douglas Wrens for their owner, Bob Douglas. And their heyday was all the way back in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. The name barnstorming comes from the idea of going from barn to barn to play games in rural or semi-rural areas. But rarely was professional basketball actually played in a barn, but that's where the name comes from. The NBA didn't come into existence until 1946. So prior to that, if you're a good player, the big money was in barnstorming. Professional leagues did exist in the Northeast and the Midwest, but they were usually not well organized and the money wasn't all that great. Leagues would last for a few years and then fold, then new leagues would pop up, players would jump from league to league, from team to team, just chasing the money in some cases, so it was just basically a big mess. Therefore, the barnstorming tour existed. And this is how it worked. So you'd have a guy, usually a local businessman with a little bit of money. The guy would form a team of six to eight players. The guy would end up becoming the manager of the team, the coach of the team, and the traveling secretary of the team. In other words, this was the guy that did all the behind the scenes stuff, scheduling games, arranging the travel, booking hotels, everything including coaching and everything else they had to go with running a team. It was a very small one-person operation. So they would go from town to town challenging the locals to a game. And usually these games were scheduled ahead of time, but sometimes the team would literally drive into town and say something like, hey, how about you guys put together your best team and let's play tonight at the high school. And a lot of times the locals would be like, okay, it's on. So they would usually use, the, like I said, the local high school or perhaps an armory or maybe a local theater to play the game. They would charge admission and then split the profits with the home team. And that's how they would make their money, by charging admission to these games. A lot of times, they would even agree to, say, split the profits 60-40, with the winner getting the 60%. And usually, when they did it like that, that would ensure a really good, hard-fought game, because you know that the winners were going to get a little bit more than the losing team. So, that helped to ensure some good basketball. And then... They would go to the next town and do the whole thing again. So most of these teams would schedule anywhere from 100 to 130 games per year. This was a lot of basketball these barnstorming teams would play, but every game was a payday. So you wanted to schedule as many as you could. You wanted to make money to bring home and pay your bills. 
but that also put a lot of wear and tear on the guys' bodies. And it's not like they travel with a trainer like NBA teams do today. If they had any sort of tape or bandages, the players would have to take care of that themselves. There was nobody there to do that for them. It's not like today where uh, an NBA team travels by chartered plane with food prepared by chefs, with six assistant coaches, two trainers, a strength coach, an equipment manager, a PR person, and typically the assistant general manager. It was nothing like it back then. Uh, those days were tough. They typically would travel either in two cars or maybe they had a small bus and that's how they drove around from town to town to town to play their games. And the current federal highway system wasn't built yet. That wouldn't come until after World War II. So they had to use local highways or back roads. There was really nothing easy about how they moved around. Sometimes, two well-known barnstorming teams would travel together and play each other town after town, night after night, and splitting the, uh, the profits from the admissions. And this was a good way to ensure a good game because you knew who you were playing, you didn't have to worry about trying to uh, play or organize any sort of a game with the locals, because sometimes playing the locals could be an awkward situation because you definitely wanted to beat the locals, but you could not embarrass them because if you embarrass them, you would never be invited back. And so you had to keep the game close. So often the barnstorming team would maybe take it easy. They wanted to make it look good, but they would take it easy a little bit to let the local team feel like they were in it until the end. And then you'd beat them, and then that would ensure an invitation for a rematch. And you had to get those rematches in order to keep making money. So this was some of the things that the barnstorming teams had to deal with. But if you were traveling with another well-known barnstorming team, then it was a more straight-up basketball game. You had two good teams, and you would play to the end. And even then, sometimes, those two teams knew we have to keep the score close until late in the fourth quarter. Basically for the same reason, you wanted to give the audience a show. Because if one team is just completely dominating the other, that could become boring and then you risk selling fewer tickets the next time around. So blowouts were basically bad for business. You wanted to avoid those if you could. Now all of this brings us to the New York Rens. This was a team that was founded in 1923 in Harlem, New York, and they took their name from the building where they played their home games, the Renaissance Ballroom. The relationship was mutually beneficial. The team had a place to play and make money, and the ballroom got free advertising for their casino slash ballroom because the New York Rens were such a famous basketball team. Often, the ballroom would feature a Wrens game followed by a dance for just a single ticket price. So they would set up tables and chairs around the ballroom, they would set up a court in the middle, and then the team would play on the court, have a good game, whatever it is they were doing. At the end of the game, they would push the baskets off into the corners, and then the court became the dance floor. And that's how they would have these Friday night, Saturday night dances at the Renaissance Ballroom. So this was a, this was big fun for, for a good ticket price. So everybody made money. It was a win-win situation all around. The big band would come out. They would play music. So you got a picture. This is the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So this was more like big band style music that you would hear at these dances. But what made the Wrens unique among barnstorming teams is that they were an all-black team. And there weren't that many of them. Back in the Wrens' heydays of the 20s and 30s, Harlem was a place that was absolutely jumping. I mean, if you've ever seen the movie Harlem Nights with Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor, 
that's basically what Harlem was like back in those days. That was the context or the background for what the Wrens were doing back then, playing their basketball. And Harlem at the time was actually a very thriving community. Business were thriving. It was the Roaring Twenties. Then Prohibition had come in. So all of this is happening while the Wrens are out dominating the basketball scene in Harlem and in around the Barnstorming Tour. Also, what happened with the Wrens, why they had to barnstorm, was because they were not allowed to play in any of the existing professional leagues. At the time, all of the professional leagues of the day only allowed white players. Unfortunately, there was nowhere for them to go. This wasn't like baseball. So while baseball had a white-only policy at the time, they did have separate leagues for the black players where they could play professionally and make money. Although it wasn't the same money as the white players, it was still a place where you could go play and support your family. Unfortunately, basketball didn't have the equivalent of those leagues. There were the white leagues and there was nothing else. So barnstorming was the only way to go. That's where you had to go to make your money and make things happen. But if there's any sort of a silver lining, and I say that very carefully, if there's any sort of a silver lining about that time, is that the Rens had no trouble scheduling a game. Hardly any of the white teams actually had a problem playing against the Rens. I mean, the players really didn't care because the players are competitive. They wanted to play the best. The best wanted to play the best, and if the Rens are the best, then let's play. And for the most part, the players had no problems with each other. Usually it was the management or the people in charge that made these policies. Now the games that the Wrens played didn't count to any standings. There was no playoffs at the end because they weren't not in a formal league. They just scheduled as many games as they could, collected their share of the profit, and then would move on. And again, they had no problem playing with each other. The only color that really mattered at the time was green, as in money. So as long as everybody was making money, everybody was happy. And even when they traveled outside of New York, into the rural and semi-rural areas, the Wrens could still find a game. It wasn't really hard for them. Their reputation preceded them. People knew about the Wrens. You could read your paper and go to the sports section, and you might hear about this team that's just demolishing the New York scene, and you wanted to see what they looked like. You wanted to see how they played. So when the Wrens came to your small town, they would pack the place out. People would come out to watch them. So even though the fans would come out to watch, sometimes traveling to these areas was tough for the Rens players themselves. Often when they would come into a town, they'd play the game, but as far as any accommodations, they'd have to either go to the, uh, the black part of town, or they might even have to go out of town to find a place to, to stay. Maybe a roadside motel that was for, for black people, and they would have to go stay there, or sometimes they would stay with local black families. So on the tour, uh, most people knew about which towns had families that were willing to put up black players into their guest room. And as far as going to a restaurant, well, forget it. Uh, typically on the road, restaurants were for white people only. So usually the team like the Reds or another, any black uh, barnstorming team would typically stop by a grocery store. They would buy bread, bologna, some sodas or beer, and they would just make sandwiches in the car as they drove to the next town. Now, if they were lucky, there might be a restaurant willing to serve them a to-go order through the back door of the kitchen. And if you got that, then great. Well, not great, but it was at least a place you could get something to eat. But otherwise, it was the grocery store and then make your own sandwiches. And they would do this until they got back to Harlem. Now, back in Harlem, these guys were celebrities. They could go wherever they want. They could eat wherever they want. They could stay wherever they want within Harlem. And over there, they were they were used to being treated differently. 
Um, they were just treated like anybody else, and that was good. And also, there's a reason why the Wrens are in the Hall of Fame as a team. By the way, you can get into the Hall of Fame as a team. So the Wrens are in there, uh, the 1960 Olympic team is in there, the 84 Olympic team is in there, the Dream Team is in there, things like that, the original Celtics, and we'll talk about all that maybe on some other podcasts. But you can get in as a team, and the Wrens are in the Hall of Fame. Their contribution to the game of basketball was absolutely incredible. They were one of the first teams to play an offensive system that used a post player. Today, we think, like, well, post using a post player is normal, but it wasn't back then. They were one of the first teams to do that. Before the Rens came along, many teams would just play with all five players kind of out on the perimeter, passing it back and forth, trying to set a, a screen for each other, and just working to get an open shot. But with the postman in the middle, now this allowed for more options. You allowed for more passing, the give and go, using the ball to dump it into the postman, collapse the defense, kick the ball back out to an open shooter. It really created a lot of new offensive opportunities and they really had perfected this. And eventually other teams began to copy the style of using a post player. I mean, today elementary school teams use post players, but back then this was absolutely revolutionary and they were the first ones to really perfect this style of offense and it really caught on. And back then, the basketball landscape, as you can imagine, was kind of like the Wild West. I mean, it was wide, it, it was wide, it was open. People were trying all different kinds of offensive systems, defensive systems. I mean, the good ideas would stick around, the bad ideas would disappear naturally. But this was a time in basketball where there was very little sense of this is the way you're supposed to play. Everybody was still learning the game. I mean, the thing had only been invented like 30 years earlier, which isn't really that much time. So people all over the place were coming up with new ways of playing, and this was part of it. And the Wrens were one of the best. In 1933, they went on an 88-game winning streak. And from 1932 to 1936, which is a five-year run, they were able to win 497 games against just 58 losses. That's a winning percentage of 88% over five years. Now, even if you look at the most recent five-year run by the Golden State Warriors, where they went to the finals five years in a row, their winning percentage was 78%. So the Rens were at 88%. That's how much they were smoking teams right and left. This team was a juggernaut. Everybody wanted to see them play. But there was one formal competition back then that was open to all teams, regardless of color. And that was the World Pro Tournament, which was held in Chicago every year. This was open to all the best teams from around America. Technically, it was all the best teams from around the world, but it was typically just American teams and maybe one or two Canadian teams would show up for this thing. But this was a World Cup-style tournament that was held in Chicago every single year. It, it was played in the old Chicago Stadium, which is where Michael Jordan would later play his, his uh, early part of his career. And they would pack that place out. 15,000 fans for a game. They might have standing room only people gathered around the outside of the building. This was a big deal. So this meant a big payday for the teams. The further you went into the tournament, the more money you made. And in 1939, the Wrens walked away with the championship and could officially call themselves the best team in the world. Some of their players like Pop Gates, Wee Willie Smith, and Tarzan Cooper were amazing in their own right. 
These guys are in the Hall of Fame. Their contribution to basketball has now been largely forgotten, and it's mostly because of a lack of video. Obviously, this was the 20s, 30s, and 40s. We didn't have cameras at the games like we do today, so most everything they did was reported in a newspaper or maybe reported on a radio, and that's all we have. It's really, it's real shame that we don't have video of what those guys did back then, but it's just the way it was, and that's part of the reason we're doing this podcast, is to bring back some of those old stories and let you know about some of these early teams, some of these early stories from basketball, the stuff you're not going to see on ESPN or Fox Sports highlights. So this is the stuff that this podcast is about. Now, the barnstorming thing, as a concept, continued to thrive through the late 40s. The Wrens played their last game in 1949 before going out of business. Things were changing around the basketball landscape. The NBA had had been established for a few years, and it was probably the most stable league everybody had ever seen. Well, now we know it's the most stable league because it's still around today, and it's making a bajillion dollars for everybody. But as the NBA established themselves as a truly stable league with good management, a lot of the really good players started moving over to the NBA, and so the barnstorming teams were losing their good players. The other thing that hurt the Wrens was that the NBA allowed black players. And so the Wrens found themselves losing their best players to the NBA, and it was time to fold. In that late 40s, a couple of teams went into the early 50s, but the whole concept of the barnstorming teams for the last 30 years just disappeared because the NBA was rising. The NBA was starting to pay higher and higher salaries. There was more prestige to the NBA. And so just real real basically, all the good players started going over there. And that's just how it developed. However, there is one barnstorming team from the era, from back then, that is still playing today. One that is still playing today. And this is the year 2020 as I record this. And that one barnstorming team still travels around the world playing basketball games. Now, what they did is they saw what was coming. And so they knew they needed to adapt or go out of business. So rather than playing just some straightforward basketball games like they used to, they slowly started to incorporate some comedy into their games. And at first, what they would do is they would do some different passing tricks, dribbling tricks, and they would make this part of their normal game uh, in a real game, real competitive game. But eventually they figured out that we need to turn our basketball game into a basketball-themed comedy show. That was the only way they were going to survive, just because there were no more opponents to play. All the barnstorming teams would go out of business, so they needed to do something, so they made the comedy show, and as you can probably guess, that team is the Harlem Globetrotters, the only one still around today. But their story is a podcast for another day. So thank you for listening. This has been Basketball History 101. Join us next time as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great sports stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. 
This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.